0: Peace, all beings of light and love in the universe. This is Baraka Blue, sending love and light to you and yours, praying all is well for Path and Present Podcast. For this week's episode, I sat with Dustin Cron, who is a good brother, uh, a very special and unique individual who I've known for some years and who has founded Umo Wide, Ummah Wide is a digital media and film production company which uh, seeks to show the stories of the Ummah, uh, the global sacred community of Muslimin and what the believers are doing all across the world and it really is using the cutting edge media, digital media to showcase these things. And Dustin just got back from a world tour all around the world, Southeast Asia, uh, Middle East. And he's working with all these exciting startups, people that are doing good things all over the world. So I sat down with him for Path & Present Podcast, and it was an enlightening conversation indeed. And I hope you enjoy. We thank you for your support. If you want to support and contribute financially, You can send through PayPal uh, any amount to connect at BarakaBlue.com. And as this is a community-supported endeavor, we are very grateful for your generosity. And in any case, we pray that you are generous of spirit, sending us all positivity and prayers, beautiful, beautiful intentions and dua, and we appreciate and benefit from them greatly. One love, enjoy path and present
1: It's the biggest divide in the world mm. right now is the traditional and the non-traditional mm-hmm. and I think that we don't we don't see it like that because growing up in a society like America, it's like the idea is that tradition is made and that we mm-hmm. all are going to make our own paths and this idea of bootstrap existence and bootstrap capitalism, and you move to the burbs and like that's where you you have a family and this white fence and now it's changed to you move to the city but the reality is, is that I think that that's part of why even those of us who may try to be living traditional lives without traditional sense of community mm. it becomes difficult because we're still living amongst all people who are non-traditional who don't speak to each other who it's weird if we try to speak to each other within our apartment buildings or within our neighborhoods or whatever it is. And I can, like, literally live in a neighborhood for years and not know anyone here and travel to see my friends. Right. And have 5,000 friends on Facebook, but not know the name of anyone in your building. And not know, yeah, and not be able to walk to the, and, and just having that tradition of being able to walk to the mosque, being able to be in community and have specific like recitations and litanies and, and the and the spiritual sense and I think my time in Morocco also that that's what I got of that place is that like tradition is still alive but then you see with the youth, so I think the idea of tradition and non tradition, it's also an intergeneration intergenerational reality that's emerging within Muslim societies is that the question is what what level of tradition will be maintained beyond the five the five daily prayers. Right. Like if, if if all of our faith has just become about that and that there's not those extra spiritual aspects involved in it, people don't live by the masjid, maybe people don't even go to the mosque, maybe people don't even pray and people are going to the mall mm-hmm. more than they're going to the mosque, right? I think that That that's the reality that we live within. It's just that the that the society has has been sliced down those lines. And I think that there's and I'm not saying it's so dichotomous that you can't live within both both existences. I think very much that as someone who works in media, who works in the digital space, I believe that there's ways that we can talk about uh, tradition. And I really like this term from Enrique Dussel, Latin American philosopher of Mm transmodernity. We have to think of how we go beyond modernity and reclaim what's traditional while understanding that our, our lives are our hybrid lives of our existences across many space, many spaces across many ideas of identity and realities of identity of who I am as a white Western man born in Colorado, having lived in the San Francisco Bay Area and like really been nurtured by this cultural reality of this place of both the Muslim community and the, and the business community. And, uh, you, know, you know, people of color centric, uh, pro-black, you know, type of black power remnants of that, that, that that's in this space. But then also being a Muslim who's traveled throughout the world, who's lived in, in West Africa, who's lived in, in different parts of the world and really been, been birthed by that also. But then understand. So it's how do we live between those those worlds rather than in, a, in balanced ways? rather than giving over totally to one of them. Because I think that the problem with, especially then it's like traditional and non-traditional. And then it's like, and now we have just these communities that are online and our lives online and our lives like so focused at our phones Mm -hmm. and our computers and our screens that I think that the world is so disrupted because of how interconnected to different parts of the world we can be through technology that we still don't know how to live with this. Mm -hmm for sure. And I think
0: there there's a imbalance in some people that, you know, can you can make an idol out of tradition or out of the past, you know. And a perfect example is in that Moroccan household we talk about the grandfather and the grandmother, like that grandmother who was still living when I was there. She they told me she lost like something like 15 children in childbirth or in infancy wow. you know what I mean yeah. and clearly with modern medical hospitals and doctors that wouldn't have happened mm. that many times you know what I mean that's because they didn't have the technology and in the, in the certain medical institutions that we have in the west so yeah man if I'm in like a small if I'm in Turin a lot of brothers that go to Tureen, you know, in Yemen, and they want to study the tradition with the great spiritual masters, uh, you know, when their wife is, is due, they're going to go home for a few months, for three months or something, so she can be in the, you know, Western hospital, have the best doctors and the best mm-hmm. institutions. So there are benefits that we ha- that we have, sure, undoubtedly. But I think... What we're, what I hear you saying and what I'm saying and what I'm very interested in is that what we're up against is a pretty dominant paradigm which doesn't really understand history, doesn't understand the intellectual history, has a very whitewashed view of it, has a very Eurocentric, and even that, a very Enlightenment, right, they just talk about the Dark Ages, they don't talk about... The actual, you know, they don't actually study the thought of, like, St. Thomas Aquinas or, like, the actually brilliant shining lights that lived in that period, even in Europe, let alone mm-hmm. what was going on in the Middle East or Africa or China or India and, and, and other places. So you just have this really uh, almost dogmatic view that there was, like, these stupid cavemen and then... Everyone was pretty backwards. And then the Greeks, they were pretty brilliant. They started thinking rationally and philosophically. And then you had the Dark Ages and religion and Christianity and all these wars and ignorance. And then you have the Enlightenment, where we rediscover this Greek heritage. And then this gives birth to the modern world as religion, kicking and screaming, fights against this advancement. Mm -hmm. And so... You know that's the paradigm that just a lot of ed, quote unquote
1: semi-educated Western people have, college-educated Western people have. Well, it's just an, ex- but it's an existence that most people don't understand how rooted it is in consistent forms of propaganda. Mm. That from our education to. Media manipulation that lives with us 24/7, especially in terms of social media and these things, is that whoever is powerful and has the money to to manipulate those realities, it's it's created a totally ahistorical existence, and that's one of the greatest problems with social media and the 24/7 cycle of news existence that we live in is it never takes a step back, Mm -hmm. and it's always responding to crises, Mm -hmm. right? And it's never saying, and and it really is, it you're able to manipulate it in more ways than you even were able to manipulate the news in the past because people don't take a step back from it they don't take a, they don't think about it and i think that that beyond with being non-traditional people comes a sense of being a historical and that's rooted foundationally in american whiteness and that in the ways in which white people were disconnected from their lineage and from their tradition and from uh, any type of existence beyond being american and so with that you don't think about the past you don't you're not rooted in the past you're not rooted in the tradition you're not rooted in the lineage and these people don't know that and so they essentially they make up their tradition and then and then they just ignore largely the great you know series of genocides that led to the point that we're at today in human history of the reality of what 500 plus years of western modernity as a global system as the first truly global system in the history of humanity what that has done to people and how its worldview, how its cosmology is is forced upon us in ways that we understand and ways that we don't understand. And I think that a lot of even my my own work and my academic work really is about this this question of the dichotomy of the mind and the heart, of of a heart centered consciousness that Islam would teach us that our reality and our perception is centered in our heart versus the, the mind-centered realities of Western philosophy of Descartes' understanding of I think, therefore, I am, meaning it's, it's that, that politics of recognition, and that has foundationally to do with the recognition of the self and therefore the God self being placed above God, above uh, revelation, above uh, you know systems of, of tradition and, and existential questions about creation. Right, and then that, and then from that, you have this scientific worldview that emerges that is a totalitarian worldview, and it's and it's idea that it, it, it's false in the belief that it doesn't say that it's from it's ahistorical, right? So it doesn't say that it has cosmological roots. Mm-hmm. It just is imagined that this is scientific, and it's right. rooted in rationality, and therefore it must be true.
0: Right, it's unbiased. Everything else is biased. This is like yeah, the sword of truth. They don't. Acknowledge the philosophical underpinnings or even the debates and discussions which give rise to this specific type of world view Attached to it
1: and even and um, we were just in my wife and I were just in Mexico And we were visiting a lot of the the Mayan ruins there and I mean it's really incredible places to visit um, Coba and Chichen Itza and in Tulum and We were with this tour guide, and he was kind of giving us a very... We had two different tour guides, uh, one younger and one elder. And the younger one was very much giving us a worldview of the Spanish.
0: Mm.
1: And he was talking about the Bering Strait Bridge and how this idea that that uh people somehow walked across the Bering Strait and that there was a land bridge at one point. And this is there's no uh real, really fossil records or anything mm-hmm. in this of this passage. And so the the proof of it is very sketchy. Mm-hmm. But yet but yeah, Western They're trying to it,
0: argue it through like DNA, right? Like the similarities maybe in DNA between Native Americans and
1: Right. And so then I began to ask him though, I said, but what is your the younger person what does your tradition tell you Mm -hmm. like where where are you from as a people and he said well our creation stories are from here right and so the idea that somehow that that creation story is false even though it's been passed down to them for millennia and for tens of thousands of years right and so then the other the elder tour guide that we had at, at chichen itza the way his entire tour. This is a man in his 70s, and it was really a blessing to spend time with him. Was rooted in the Mayan cosmological existence, and Chichen Itza as that sacred space that, in many ways, reminded me of like entering Mecca, and the idea that once you enter this precinct, you have to, you know, you have to say a prayer and you have to be in a state of purification. And now, of course, there's all these tourists, and they even they even used to let tourists climb on the pyramids now they finally stopped that, but the idea that, like, nothing has become sacred, that somehow that because this is past and this is ancient, even though the Mayans, you know, still live within their own traditions, that now it's just a, a site of tourism, that it no longer has a sacred reality, that it no longer has a traditional existence, right?
0: For sure. And so the various stories, creation stories of different peoples they can't be true they're taught as like historical you know which is very interesting man is that again and that thing is very Eurocentric I think that's the important part to mention it's like no peoples anywhere on earth were atheists until modern Europe Right. right. like you know what I mean and so what you have is this proselytization going on, which is totally disrespectful and has total disregard for the indigenous people's religion, stories, beliefs, you know, Christianity. And then as Christianity wanes in the West, now it's the form of the new dominant religious paradigm, which is,
1: you know, scientific materialism. Right and still a lack of recognition of what, exactly. that, of what that true genocide even was mm. and, and what it's meant for indigenous peoples in the Americas, its ties to slavery and now even just recently we have the disgusting like, really you know for all the good that Pope Francis has done in mm-hmm. you know calling for peace throughout the world to make Juno Perisera this great you know one of the founders of you know genocide in California. Um, and really, an architect of, of a system, the mission system that was rooted in forced conversions, uh, rape, uh, mm-hmm. killing—like all these things—that it was to make him a saint. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not only a rec- we don't even recognize the genocidal legacy mm-hmm. of Western life in this continent, but we but then we ignore it, gloss over it, and literally sanctify that leadership. Mm-hmm. Like so, so what does it mean to live in California and to live? And I think that especially as a Muslim, when we have these traditions of like the Makasa of Sharia, that are the overarching values of the law, mm-hmm. that would say that property is is found is foundationally a right, a human right of lineage, and we're people that don't recognize lineage, mm-hmm. don't recognize lineage. Those of us who are white people, especially. You know, Black folk who were, who were stolen from the Americas, like, no, we don't have connection to our lineage. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, uh, Islam in many ways roots us and gives us a, a spiritual lineage. But then also this idea of, of property and that we're on land that was, that was stolen. Mm-hmm. And that so there's something spiritual. Those of us who live in this space and are spiritual people, we know that there's something spiritually off mm-hmm. with this place. And go like, for instance, here in the Bay Area, you you go to this mall. It's called Bay Street. Mm -hmm. It's in Emeryville, right on the edge of the Bay. In the mall, they have this recognition that that used to be a burial ground, the shell mound. The shell mound for the indigenous people of that space, and now it's literally a mall built on top of it. But somehow it's like, oh well, we'll build this, you know, little plaque. Right. This like. Isn't that fitting though? Because that's really
0: the religion, not Christianity, man. It's really not. I mean, it's not,
1: it's definitely not anything Jesus would have recognized, but, you know. No, I think you're right. I mean, and I think that Christianity, all these things are very complex, the same as Islam. There's multiple Islams. There's multiple teachers. There's multiple people propagating Islam. There's multiple people propagating Christianity and of course you have within the Americas this great tradition of liberation theology right. this, uh, this emergence the of this idea of, of liberation theology within the black church practical theology and what's happening around that right now and, uh, and, and really some movement based understandings mm-hmm. of those teachings right? you know,
0: it's not like there's something in Islam or Christianity that's less problematic than certain things within Buddhism as far as like modern Western liberal PC values, like there's some super problematic things. I mean, most traditions within Buddhism traditionally taught that uh, only men can attain enlightenment and that the best a woman like full enlightenment, the best a woman can do is be uh, born the
1: next life as a man. To attain. Well, and that's what the Dalai Lama just got in trouble for saying some stuff like that mm. publicly, right? And I think that he kind of yeah. had some PR backlash and and that's that's it, right? Is that he has great PR, like, yeah. right? Because there was a book that came out that he wrote right at the millennium mm. cause, like ethics for a new millennium mm. and it had all these issues of like uh, how homosexuality is like forbidden totally and all these forbidden. things in Buddhism. And, they, and his editors edited all that out. And so his teachings are literally edited for a Western audience yeah. in a way that's consumable. and I think that, yeah, it's totally PR and even with this Pope, a lot of, there's a lot of articles written about how what he's doing isn't that radically different from the previous Pope. The difference is how they're angling it and his PR and that he has this, this major Catholic PR person that came in from Fox News with him. And that was like literally came on with Pope Francis. And so you see a difference in how what that PR looks like. But then again, but I I think there's a deeper message, too, of like of people who are seen as good people who work for social justice. And so these are seen as like people like Desmond Tutu, Tip Nat you know, the Dalai Lama, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela was one of them, even someone like I would say Muhammad Ali is this figure that's seen as, like, someone who stood... These are people who stood for something, and I think that that's ultimately what people love and what they love publicly mm-hmm. about... And Pope Francis, right, being one of them, of uh, people who, who who do this publicly and, do, and stand for something. And I think the issue with, with the Muslims is that we have people like Imam Zaid, you know, who who stands publicly on all these issues, but I think that also it has to do with layers of media manipulation and layers of media ownership also. Mm -hmm. Because if you see, like, all this coverage of Pope Francis in America, that has to do with, like, who owns those stations. Whereas, like, if you look at Al Jazeera and how Al Jazeera is going to cover the Muslims who Al Jazeera will give a platform to. Al Jazeera will give a platform to Shah Hamza, to Imam Zaid, and invite all these people in, but will, like maybe PBS has given them right. a couple but of. not CNN, not Fox But not like live streaming, live broadcasting, and then not only that. So it's just like, it's about, this is about Hollywood. And so I think of it as like the, tri, you know, it's the big trifecta of, of power right now is technology rooted in the Bay Area, media rooted in New York City, and Hollywood rooted in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and who's embedded in those three spaces, and who owns them literally, and what faith they are whether it's Jewish, Christian, etc. and what ends up being representative in those spaces. And, and we think of it as like you know, the coverage of Israel and how Israel is covered some a certain way, and it's just simply a, a matter of media ownership. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you know, I think within starting like within starting Luma Wide, within starting you know. Some of the projects that I've been working on, a lot of that to me has to do with direction and how we how we build, you know, something that that the community can be reflective and beautiful beautifully. And I think of this photo in particular of Malcolm. In starting on the white, I reflected a lot on it. Was Malcolm standing on a corner, selling newspapers, right? And so here's Malcolm before he was known popularly and in media. Here's him hustling to sell his, you know, Muhammad speaks on the streets, being one of the founders of the person who built that institution into what it was as a as a big national newspaper. Ultimately, understanding that you have to be able to get your message out in your own voice, and that there's people, especially who are downtrodden and people who are oppressed, who you are mo- most likely to build alliances and relationships with through your own messaging and through your and and through standing up for something, standing up for social justice. Whereas so much of the American Muslim kind of PR front has been this idea of recognition and acceptance. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, it's great that we have a hijabi uh, you know, model at H&M, right. can just be standing next to some girl who's totally naked and like totally disrespectful to the company can still be totally disrespectful to these and this idea of what anorexic you know white model beauty looks like but oh we flip it up a little bit because we want you to buy our stuff but we're going to be but at the same time as all this this PR fluff around this stuff comes out you have the reality that H&M has not lived up to any of the standards that said it would live up to in Bangladesh, where it actually produces its clothes, where you have had you know, this massacre, you know, or not massacre, but this mass death at Rana, Rana Plaza, where a 1,000 workers died. That was and the fire. That was the, the fire. And then H&M was one of the first to sign on the dotted line, like, we want to change our policies. And then here comes this report almost two years later showing that none of it's changed. But none of that, but that all flies under the radar, in a Muslim majority country, being Bangladesh, and that Muslims should actually care about what, what you know, what people are going through throughout the world in in terms of justice, but also maybe you know, in in a place so, like Bangladesh, but but then nothing happens. Like all we all right. all the PR is around this hijabi model. So you're saying Muslims are super excited that, um,
0: basically, H&M put a Muslim ribbon on the same package they've been selling, which goes against as far as their practices of how they make clothes uh, the exploitative labor not to mention that happens to be in Muslim countries that they're doing this exploiting these individuals Uh, but basically we trade in our ethical teachings for a little bit of like you know a kind of quick little postcard or a little smile or a little you know Eight by ten uh, shot on the nightly news. Yes, yeah,
1: essentially, it's politics of recognition, mm. and so everything is about being recognized as. And this all goes back to the to the roots of 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 Western philosophical realities is that is that as Du Bois called it, it's these clay figured these white men W. E. B. Du Bois these clay figured white men that have built themselves up on these pedestals. And the politics of recognition is about that white God standing on that pedestal and everyone looking for recognition. Well, the war on terror has totally been reflective of that, where all of our PR and all of the work that that we've done to have recognition is showing that we can be a model minority, Mm. that, that we can live up to Western existence and just accept us we're just like you We're too. We're just like you. And then Dubai and these places are even there and even Mecca itself building the you know, the second largest skyscraper in the world that literally shadows the Kaaba. Mm-hmm. And then we don't think and it's a Las Vegas style architecture. Literally, I've you know, totally. I've been there, I've seen it. It's as ugly as in the architecture in Las Vegas. And that and that somehow all of these things just that, that we do these things that we can be bigger than you, we can be better than you. Mm-hmm. We can be so westernized, but yet we pray. Mm-hmm. But we have no ethical basis for our existence in our lives. Right. And that everything is Sharia compliant, meaning that there's no interest involved. Right? It doesn't have anything to do with ethics. And so, mm-hmm. so, my question here is you know, where, but yet we have things like B Corps, you know, that are about like the, the corporate, corporate values of corporations, even none of that is even emerging within the Muslim business space. Right. And so, you know, I really question a lot of this thinking because because all of this, our media coverage, like who we are and like the type of businesses we're building, the types of cities we're building and who it's reflective of. Right. We're not actually because I think that's what
0: when you when you talk about your journey to Islam through Malcolm and through and through that narrative and my own and many others what drew us and many of the brothers that converted, you know, in the 20th century up until today, and sisters, is that it's an alternative. Islam is an alternative way of life. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of interacting. It's a way of doing business. It's a way of structuring the, you know, social structure. It's a way, you know, a different way of uh, dealing with Money. It's a different way of dealing with family. It's all these things. It's a radical transformation. But what you see is essentially, and what I hear you saying is, no. It's actually most Muslims and Muslim governments throughout the world, they're trying as hard as they can to just fit in to the global monoculture. And then, you know, just like all these Western-style governments in Muslim lands, then maybe for a little bit of marriage and family law, they throw in a little bit of traditional Sharia and act acts, act like uh, it's Sharia compliant or it's based on the
1: Sharia. Right, and I mean, it, like I said, and this has a lot to do with long-term oppression, long-term colonization, and so this is what we call coloniality, modernity. The term coloniality within my philosophical background, within you know, Latin American philosophy, is this idea of, colonialidad de poder, right? It's the coloniality of power, or like how how colonization is so deeply embedded with the reality of the world that that created, that how its remnants are in the air that we, are in every aspect of the air that we breathe. And so there's been no real decolonization, especially in Muslim-majority societies and Muslim-majority countries and in with our own philosophical traditions of how we deal with modernity, because everything, so much money has been spent, spent by the Wahhabi power structure of a certain state whose people I love but whose state has spread this form of Islam that is all about fiqh and is about law and is, an about, is about externalities, mm-hmm. but it has no deep philosophical tradition. It has almost nothing to do with ethical realities as that state is reflective of. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's my question, is how do we get back to an ethical form of, of, of living and understand the level of crisis that we live within? Because neoliberalism the form of capital global capitalism that exists today that is not regulated, that is only about bottom lines and increasing global capital in in emerging markets, in Western markets, and keeping this thing going as it exists will destroy humanity within the next hundred years. Mm-hmm. No questions asked. Mm-hmm. If it's if it is not stopped unabated. Mm-hmm. Right? It just it's a story you, the we planet see, we're on for sure. Yeah, we see where it's going, and so like our children, and we see it all day, every day. Like right now, right when when we're recording this podcast, there's these floods in South Carolina that are like thousand-year floods. Every year now, there's a thousand-year flood. So how, gee, that? But but yet within. But again, look at the media manipulation and the coverage of the thing. Mm-hmm. When all it's called is extreme weather, it's that new reality of extreme weather never mentioning the term climate change. Because talking about climate change and talking about stopping the means of production would mean that you might actually have to admit that you have to stop consuming and living the, the nefs, the ego-based, ego-self reality that we live. Yeah, I mean, back to like the, that whole recognition. I saw a
0: video that was floating around on social media maybe a week ago and it was like very well done as far as the production budget you could tell it was well recorded and stuff and it had all these various Muslims I don't know if you saw it and it was like I'm Muslim but did you see it? it's like I'm Muslim but I'm not a terrorist I'm Muslim but was that the BuzzFeed one? I think it might have been and it was just there's a
1: couple of those that came out recently but I think that's the BuzzFeed one it was so ridiculous because
0: again it's just this politics of recognition and it's like imagine if for you know the fact that we I think a lot of people could see that and be like oh okay yeah that's cool there's some like cool Muslims out there but just try to imagine putting another quote unquote minority in that box and have them doing it for instance if there's a bunch of black people saying I'm black but I don't I'm not in a gang I'm black but I don't Ha- have a child out of wedlock um, You know basically Talking about all the White stereotypes That dehumanize this population And then being
1: like See I'm okay I'm okay You know I mean it's just And I mean that's why From our beginnings With Umawai That's why we've just been Unabashedly We're going to be Who we are mm-hmm. And we're going to cover What Muslim. So what's your vision For Umawai For I those mean, that, that don't know I mean I mean, it's growing and it's changing, but I think I originally started the company with the intention of living into the Quranic call of humanity to know one another, this idea of ta'arif that's in the Quran, which is one of the, the verses that most struck me in my own journey to Islam, was that we as human beings were made to know one another. We were made into races and tribes to know one another, right? That idea that our differences could actually live into something that is god's dream god's dream for humanity as desmond tutu puts it and you know he has a children's book and a and a a full-length book of this title is is that we that we know each other that we're in relationship with another that we build things together that we intermarry and the best times in muslim history is when it was the most open culturally and that there wasn't this culturally you know colonizing version of Islam which is what Wahhabism and, and Salafism has, has, has done to certain parts of the Muslim world but that there was an openness there, were, where, where people intermarried, where cultures came together and we saw the beauty that emerged from that and so my question has always been what would that look like especially living in a place like the Bay Area where we have every type of intermarriage right now within the you know the beautiful Muslim community here what does that next generation of children look like who are you know, Filipina, you know, African-American children, or, Mm -hmm. you know, Pakistani, Moroccan, or, you know, Mexican and Tunisian, or white and, you know, Arab, Mm -hmm. or, you know, these global diasporic realities that we're living into, what does that mean for us? And so I think that, and also it's a reflective of what I believe is a global moment of a, an emergence of a global generation of young people who we live very our lives very connected we have a lot of similar lifestyle tastes we have a lot of uh, very very similar cultural tastes while also having our cultural differences but we have so much that's in common that if we build beautiful media that appeals to one another i think that that it's a, it's a major space that's missing because you end up with these you end up with these you know i don't know how to say it but like white majority owned ideological spaces that are not creative that are that that only live into this politics of recognition reality of i'm muslim but right and allowing people to produce that type of content rather than producing like really creative work that actually tells our own stories in all of their complexity of the refugee shia you know sister from pakistan who's who's in this country trying to build unity amongst sunnis and shias because she don't want to see that, that world that she grew up in reflected for her children, and you know being like as she is as twenty twenty two twenty years old or whatever right like what are those so basically saying the untold stories, but I think it's larger than just the Muslim community in terms of, so that 's where as a as a uh, company we 're thinking about what 's next in terms of something larger than even even wide hmm. In the sense that, as you were mentioning before, before we
0: started recording, this idea of maybe all people, but definitely myself as an artist, and, and I think as you know, individuals who are authors or who are making media, where you're within a specific uh, spiritual tradition, and you're trying to honor that, and you're trying to uh, help that flourish and pass on that that lineage, and you know, bloom that beautifully, but at the same time you are trying to find a way to articulate, uh, articulate that with such a
1: universality that it speaks to all people. this idea of being universal without recognizing histories and without recognizing struggles mm-hmm. and without recognizing specific realities and your own situatedness within that reality of who, who am I as a white man with certain layers of privileges that, and how do I exist in the world and how do I exist in a world where I can I can do good in it and I can and I can you know be in solidarity as much as possible with those struggles while recognizing that I love all of humanity I love all of human I love all of creation and I want to work because I want to work for our creator who told us to live a life you know to serve that to serve his creation. And I think that but I think that there are a reality where and I think we've been talking about this, you know, in our conversations, of where within our own conversion stories are we're we're open to this universal reality of existence. And that's why one of the reasons why we're open in, in terms of being seekers and reading all these different texts and like going to different gatherings and sitting with different people. But then we get so into a space like as being Muslims because we see like the level of need, the level of crises, all of these things that we become, and the we, level of beauty of yeah, the tradition. Yeah. And each tradition is like a language. So
0: you learn a language, you be able to. You have to. Be, you know, you learn the grammar, you learn the cues, the codes, you learn the, you all the subtleties of it to be able to translate that language. Because a lot of people get they learn this new language, they forget how to speak
1: their own. In, in a certain sense,
0: yeah. And
1: I think that you know, and I I think of it from the perspectives of like. Our friends, right, that we knew since high school, that knew you as like Jamie, mm-hmm. knew me, you know, still know me as Dustin, but no, but knew, like, that is not the Dustin that I knew in high school. That dude was crazy, mm-hmm. right? And now all he is is this Muslim cat that's on some Muslim stuff all day, every day. Right, and so my my point is, is like I think that my my work, my my writing, my you know my the work I want to do, I want it to be able to be approachable for everyone, and so that's why I think that we have to speak to Muslims, but we also that. I think that there's such a crisis of identity within our own communities, and especially, like, even white communities. I think about white communities all day, every day. Like, white folk are some of the most lost people in the world, right? And that's why it's reflective of of why white supremacy can still be seen as a solution for these people as to how to live their lives, right? Is because no one's ever done deep work within that community of saying, like, how, you know, like, of dealing with the depth of what that problem is and how, we, t- how do we talk to white people about whiteness in a way that will allow them to accept kind of what's happened and that they still have and recognize that they have their own struggles that they have their, and that they have their own humanity and that they can bring good to the world, but that there has to be a recognition of, of what this racial past has been and what the racial present is lived as for that to happen I want to like bring it back because I think a lot of this ties in really interestingly
0: because we were talking about you know this uh, I'm Muslim but you know this policy of trying to be acceptable and I think what's ironic about that for Muslims immigrant Muslims in the post 9-11 world is that for those of us who our exposure to Islam was pre-9-11 through hip hop and through African American culture art, music uh, literature, movements activism etc the Islam that I was always first exposed to was that Islam is the blackest thing you can do like to be Muslim is to truly attain pinnacle authentic blackness and in a, in a strong way to opt out of trying to be white. Like, it's the furthest thing. Like, it's turning away from that. And I think that's what... That's how the nation articulated itself in a real way. It's like, no. Like, you don't need to be like these people. They gave you this false religion. You worship this blue-eyed, blonde-haired cracker. You know you know that you need to be purified. This, this is the Afro-Asiatic, true black man's religion. And so... In that sense, it was this liberation tool. It was a tool to liberate people that for 400, 500 years had been told they're less than, they're subhuman, they're this and this. And it was a spiritual, social liberation. To tie that in with what we're talking about with whiteness is that in many ways, Islam was then, and it still is, something which I think I heard it from you first, this idea of apostasy from whiteness. So when white people convert to Islam, it's seen as, like, apostasy from whiteness. And I, whether it's intended by the individual themselves or not. And I remember, like, first becoming Muslim and being around black Muslims that told me, like, oh, you're not white anymore. Like, you became Muslim. You gave that up. Like, you're one of us now. You know what I mean? And being like, I don't know. <laughs> like, like but, but this idea of that that's an acknowledged reality. And um, I just, I'm sure you have some thoughts on that. So I was wondering what you...
1: About it. it is that to a large extent. It is, le- it is an attempt at leaving whiteness. And I think for a lot of white Muslims it can become that. But then a lot of white Muslims make the mistake of then not wanting to recognize the racial reality that they live within and the privileges, the way that they may be privileged within general society, the way that they may be privileged by immigrant communities, you know, amongst, amongst Muslims. And so you have to be very, very conscious of it. And I think, you know, the hardest one that we have is, you know, is Sheikh Hamza. As much as we love Sheikh Hamza, um, he has a hard time because of the way he was raised, I think, with his mother raising him in such an open way that, that he doesn't see himself as a white person. And he makes that very clear. But sometimes I think there's a, maybe it's a hard time to recognize that what that racial privilege is and the way that he can be privileged compared to other scholars, and he's a great scholar, and I'm not discounting who he is and my love for him as my, as my teacher. That there's a lot of white Muslims that I've known like that, that maybe they're Muslim, but they still don't deal with issues of whiteness. So I think that the way I th- thought about it at one point was, yeah, it's like, it's like an apostasy to whiteness but i think that there, i think that the way that i'm thinking about it now is there's a degree of that and then there's what i would call culturally specific white people and culturally specific white people are white people who have taken on other forms of identity on top of their whiteness and they try for that to erase their realities of who they are as white people when as conscious white people they could be working within white communities and speaking about white supremacy as very effective allies to communities of color who live oppressive existences all day every day right and so that so examples of that are queerness right someone could say like a white person who may be homosexual could be who's queer could be like yo that's all I am. I don't have to recognize my whiteness because I'm I have this form of oppression. Interesting. Right? Or like I have a bun I'm tatted up mm-hmm. and I, my face is covered in tattoos right. and I'm trying to be different.
0: Punk it's rockers, like, yeah. all black, just totally mm-hmm. checked out of exactly. like you can't get and a so, job
1: like that in corporate America. So white Buddhists, white Muslims, right. white Hindus, white you know, right. Hari Krishnas that we got rolling around on the streets of Berkeley for the last forty years, singing every day, right? And but but that don't take people out of, of, of the realities of whiteness it is, and so I think the best the best term I've ever used uh, about this is called white double consciousness, and it comes from Du Bois's understanding of double consciousness, which is that 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 black folk acted one way and had a certain consciousness about them when they were around white people, and another consciousness about them when they were around themselves around black people, right? But the idea of white double consciousness is that white people need to recognize the roots and realities of white supremacy while actively living uh, an anti-racist existence on this earth. And so I think that the point is, is that you just have to be very conscious of, of, what, of what these things are like. And then I think there's layers of it too, right? Where a lot of my white friends who are Muslim and there's a lot in the Bay Area, probably more than most places in the world, right? A lot of white Muslims. And most of whom are married to women of color. Very few white people I know are married, white Muslims are married, married to other white people. And I, But I don't think that, I think that this is the next layer of existence, that we re, we're still dealing with race in such a, a reactionary way where we're not having conversations still about family and about what... You know, and children, and intermarriage, and the fact, like John Powell, the you know great scholar at UC Berkeley, he said that the fastest growing demographic in the United States is not Latinos; it's actually interracial. It's in interracial marriages. It's fascinating. And so the question to me there is like, how do we begin to have conversations about how we're literally breaking down borders in our love, in our lives, and and what does that mean to be married to? other cultural realities to deal with, to like, it's one thing to be married. It's another thing to be married and live across cultures and, and because the key to marriage is effective communication, love and commitment. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if, if any of those things break down, the marriage will break down. And so I think that we as a society still are at a point where we're talking about what this mixedness is, what it's becoming. You know, and and I think Latin America is a is a preview, perhaps, and a, hopefully it's a way that we can change it. Where Latin America always was this idea of being mestizo and being mixed, but whiteness was still very much privileged. With as long as you were majority white, you're you were privileged as being the top of of, of that that quote, racial food chain, mm-hmm. and the end of it would of course be like indigenous and black, mm-hmm. or some mixture of those things, right? And so I think that. That we have to make sure that, and so this has to do with skin tone, um, you know, shades of of racial realities, Mm -hmm. and the very explicit anti-black racism, even beyond white supremacy that exists amongst Muslims, that exists throughout the world, that is very, you know, explicit and needs to be made public through movements like Black Lives Matter, uh, out of a recognition that, you know, black lives continually do not matter uh, in the public space. So, and then, but then beyond that, I think that, you know, and this has to do with, and these are all matters, why this conversation is so important, because these are all matters of life and death, is that we can constantly otherize someone, and, and it's also why we have to get this right. It's why we can't just be recognized and have a seat at the table. It's like, you, ha- you can't just have a seat at the table. You have to want to affect power. Meaning that if power is oppressive and is killing people, and the American military, and American, the, what, whatever, the existent reality of an American empire still today, its power is killing people throughout the world, and those lives surely don't matter either, and they're not even talked about. Because there ain't no remnant of an anti-war movement in this country. Mm-hmm. And so how do we get Muslims, how do we get people generally to think about saying that those lives affected by american militarism and war those 4 million majority muslims who've been murdered since 9/11 in american these insane american wars that are only padding the bottom line of american military these military contractors mm-hmm. how do we how do we stop this madness Again, and these are all... Because, because we're dealing with war rather than dealing with the realities of, of the planet being destroyed. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, 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 like, how do we live through our own lens of existence? I think the best, you know, one of my greatest philosophical, you know, influences are the Zapatistas. And they have this, this term that says, in Spanish, it says, you know, Struggle for a world where multiple worlds can exist. Mm. And that that to me is like being recognized by a reality that's destroying human existence isn't of my interest. Being recognized by, you know, people who hold themselves up as false gods in a racial hierarchy and reality that's existed for 500 years and maintaining that syst- those systems of oppression are not of my interest at all. Mm. My interest is struggling for, so that all of these worlds and our worldviews and our knowledges can exist and can exist together. Mm-hmm. And can thrive and flourish together because we need those knowledges to come together so that our children can continue to live on this planet. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the master race is having fantasies about moving to Mars, mm-hmm. right? And all these films, like I saw this film, The Martian. I saw it too. It's a dope movie, but there's propaganda embedded in that film, for sure. <laughs> I'm like, y'all get ready because we we got to move. Than people talking about for the survival of the species. Yeah,
0: and I kept thinking about the fact that all of humanity was united to put all these like billions and billions of dollars to rescue one individual, which is great. But how many people die every day of starvation just across the ocean? You know what I mean? How many people are suffering and don't have a home just across the bridge? You see what I'm saying? So it's just exposes this really weird uh, bypass that we can do and I think you know one of the ways that I think about race that I think is necessary to add to the discourse because to be honest like a lot of the like kind of like far left discourse about race and whiteness and stuff I find it a bit empty And like we could talk about it till we're blue in the face, but the way that the only way that I see to truly solve racism is is through a metaphysical understanding of what we are as human beings. And I think that in that sense, it's like Malcolm said, Islam can really heal the race problem, because if we're a ruh and we're create if we're spirit that's created from one soul. I mean, that's foundational in the Quran. We we're created from one soul. And that we we're spread out into nations and tribes to know one another. You know, we affirm ultimately the transcendent nature of our unicity, that we are bound together by our interconnectedness, and that. Though on the level of outward manifest forms There's differences The reality is that if I were to harm you I'm harming myself And la ilaha illallah d- demands that That we're ultimately united In the supreme reality And so any And the foundational Sin of What made Iblis shaitan Is anna minhu I am better than him mm-hmm. And he does that By not seeing the inward reality of Adam, but judging by his outward form. He just saw clay. He didn't see the ruh. So if we do that with another human being, we have, you know, in in a sense, committed the first act of sin, the first act of evil, the first act of devilishness. And we follow the sunnah of shaitan, ma'adhu billah. But... There's two levels, because one, we have to affirm that. But then, on the level of the world, on the physical level, if that's the metaphysical level, we are in different positions. And we do benefit as having blue eyes and blonde hair and less pigment in our skin from the historical structures of oppression, colonization, and slavery, and all these things. And I think the reason why a lot of white people struggle with this is because they just, if you constantly remind them you're white and you've, you know, white people have done this and that. A lot of white people, they're just like, look, man, I was just born and I didn't enslave anybody and I'm not really that rich. And you know what I mean? I'm struggling, too. I'm just trying to live. What's wrong with you? Quit reminding me of this. And especially because of what you talked about, this, like, white supremacy creeping up, especially all these – this weird, like, patriotism in the wake of Obama getting elected and all these, like, far-right kind of militia groups. It's just so fascinating and, you know, calling him a Muslim as opposed to the N-word because that's not acceptable, the last but the first is. You know what I mean? But still, really, it's about, like, what's not American about him? Oh, his – brown skin and the fact that you know what i mean he comes from ancestry not from here and all these things my point here is that i don't f- like i feel like if we just acknowledge the legacy without acknowledging the transcendent unity then we also do ourselves like we don't actually solve the problem
1: you feel I me mean? yeah but I, I think that and that has to do with I mean, Christianity has been used in racist ways. For sure. And so it has to do, like, we need those white pastors and Christian communities and whatever, like, to really make some serious arguments about how Christianity at its root is anti-racist. Mm. And we would hope, right? Yeah. And so, and I think, and I agree with you, and Islam is that universal worldview but the question is whether or not we're living into it. And, and, if, and I just think that we're not doing enough. And I think I get, frankly, I'm bored with the conversations in the Muslim community uh, and most communities that are these unidirectional conversations that are just lecturing to us took us to who and what we should be when right now in my opinion as much as we need scholarship we need facilitators we need people who can lead discussions and conversations about these issues about these topics and deal with people in a spiritually real way who are struggling to say like how this you know this racism is embedded within me like there's certain cultural realities in this country where people are born into racist families they're raised as racist and they're not raised to see the world a certain way but when but you know my my challenge to those people would be like look and again this has to do with the philosophical reality because if if you don't know that your heart is your center of perception and that you can feel good and evil in your heart and that you can feel doing good and doing bad in your heart and your heart is just blackened and hard you won't know that your existence as a racist is Is wrong, and not only that, but Malcolm called white people devils. He was right in the sense that acting in that way is living into a devilish legacy that was, you know, in its roots, is devilish from you know these Cain and Abel type days, right? Mm -hmm. And so the question would be, how do we transform ourselves and begin to see ourselves as souls? And I think that you know that has to do with being spiritually mature and. You know, and what happens when we die? And what happens, you know, who do we become when we're all in the ground? And we share ain't here. Mm. You ever seen a person who is not in there, who have di- has died? They are not, that reality is not their soul, their, you know, their existence is no longer embodied in that body, literally. And we, you see that. And so for those people would be like, what is my legacy You know, what will my children think of me? What, you know, we live in an existence where we will experience things that our children will never see. We can swim in the ocean and see coral reefs, and our children will not. Mm -hmm. By the time, even if we were to have them this year, right, even 10 years from now, they likely will not see coral reefs. We... We were, when, again, we, when we were just in Mexico, the beaches were covered in seaweed, and the whole Caribbean area is covered in seaweed because of this mass infestation of this seaweed, that they said, that came from some type of chemicals, basically, put in the ocean, probably to disperse the oil spill that happened in the Gulf of Mexico, oh. and now it's a national crisis for these countries that depend on tourism, and so will our children be able to walk on white sand beaches? You know, what beauty will be destroyed because of our way of life? Uh, you know, and I think Saul Williams has this great line that is, what, what have you bought into and what will it cost to buy you out? Mm-hmm. And I think that. And, and, like,
0: and then he said
1: uh, something about buying
0: into a mentality that originally bought you. Yeah. Talking about, you know, African Americans, particularly in slavery, like buying into a
1: mentality that originally bought you. No, so if you hate racism, if you hate white supremacy, you know, then then understand the legacy that is being, you know, created, and it, it's logical that a that a system that has created genocide over and over again over the last five hundred years and is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of millions, that its endgame would be the destruction of the planet and human existence on the earth. Mm-hmm. Like, that's crazy if you think about it like that. And so we have to see each other as souls to to show, to see what is necessary. Like, and that's why Islam is hard. You know, people think, oh, Islam is easy. Man, Islam is hard because in the sense that we have a lot to live up to. And I, I think the majority of people I know who quit practicing or leave Islam or whatever, it's because they, they reach a point where they think that they can't live up to mm-hmm. its standards or they see such ugliness.
0: when well, they see so other, few
1: many people living up to the standards that they're just like it's empty. Yeah, or and, or it, they, and they, again, we don't have spiritually deep spaces in terms mm-hmm. of having uh, conversations of like, we don't have enough spiritual masters that can actually work on the state of people, mm-hmm. right? We don't have people who've committed themselves to that life and those people are becoming fewer and fewer. Some. And I
0: mean, I don't envy the, 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 Ulema, the scholars in this day, because it's like, like no time in history, perhaps they're becoming a, t- you know, it's a struggle to remain relevant. And there's, there seems, you know, spending time in the Arab world, like, especially man, there's this type of distrust now. Of the scholars because they've been manipulated, not you know, a lot of them have been manipulated by state actors on this side or that side, you know, to bolster that this regime or that regime. And again, it's like Sheikh uh, Muhammad Yaqubi, when he was here, he was saying, like, all these, these traditional books of fiqh, you know, they need to go up on the shelf, like, we need. Tejdeed. We need renewal to to write these texts for our time, which is amazing. Because again, like we were talking about before, uh, like one of the brothers said, if it was you or I that were to say that, we need Tajdid. We need renewal. We need you know. We'd be seen as these like liberal, progressive Muslims. You know what I mean? But you have someone who's you know very very much conservative. In the tradition of classical ulama, you know, whose father was a scholar, whose father was a scholar, all the way back, this very Syrian, classical, you know, uh, orthodox, Islamic man, Ihsan, traditionalist, sang it. You see what I'm saying? But it's almost like, yeah, but too little, too late. It's like so... So much is going in the opposite direction and so many people are checked out and so many people are just are modernizing and the, the educated amongst the Muslims, they're totally turning to these medicine or engineer engineering to kind of be like high paid cogs in the machine uh, and the traditional places of learning where these texts were taught because to translate them and to revive them, you need people that master that ancient tradition and know the modern condition deeply. And it's like there, there's fewer and fewer places where you can study the tradition. And the people that are doing it are not the most intelligent. They don't tend to be. They're just people that, because they've been defunded, delegitimized by colonialism. Um, and these Arab state regimes. And these Arab state regimes that have underfunded them or manipulated them to serve their ideological interests, yeah. self-interest. And so the the people that have, you know, the only places that have maintained these traditions, the ancient traditions, tend to be the most remote ones that are so poor that they escaped the grip of colonialism in Mauritania or in Yemen or places like that. So there's a, you know, the, the ancient way is still preserved, but... People that live there are the least equipped to understand the modern West because of just the remoteness of it, like by, na- by the nature of it. And so the- we're coming to this impasse where the breach is getting so large. And it's crazy because even of the last generation, even 20 years ago, uh, you know, these traditional institutions were still preserved or the masters are still preserved in most of the Muslim world. You know what I mean it's it's we're like the first generation coming of age where that is kind of like becoming extinct and fossilized and a passed on thing of the past you
1: know yeah I mean there's so much that needs to change I think that and that's again is like this idea and I think for the ulama they have to question their their own intentions and you know there's all these hadith about the intentions of the scholar yeah. and you know, and, and where what where they're at, and I think that when you're tied to these powerful powerful regimes, like my friend uh, in Saudi Arabia, he was telling me that there will be a scholar on television, and he'll be talking about you know spiritual impoverishment before Allah and all these things, right? And then and then obviously he's well funded and well taken care of by the government, and so someone will post a meme of him on. Twitter or Facebook of what, of his statement, and then him driving a Rolls Royce. Wow. And that this is what the youth think of the, the scholarship. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's, we need independent scholarship that is not tied to these really deep layers of power, and I think that also even American scholarship, right, that's tied to some funding issues related to the State Department that very much want to fund a certain type of Islam. I'm not saying that, you know, it's just we have to be really weary of what this, these, this funding means for our for how people perceive scholarship, right? And I think a, a layer of what Sheikh Mohammed, you know, one of the things that put these fake books on the shelf is the need for female scholarship, the need for real, you know, the... The need to prioritize, as men, female scholarship, like, right, that, that we need to fight for that and say that, like, we want, you know, we need to support these sisters who are struggling to, to become scholars who, you know, who might go to Zaytuna College, but they most of them are not going to be offered jobs. Mm -hmm. when they graduate from that college, even though we know for a fact they're the best students, Mm -hmm. right? We're friends with them. We know that, you know, no offense to the brothers, but most of them would admit it too, Mm -hmm. that these young women are the, you know, we need them because, you know, women, this idea, I think you said it, right, the the number of spaces that women can go to and have, you know, women teach them, and the reality that women face as women on this earth, right? The consistent abuse and just everything, right? Especially being a Muslim woman who's like in a constant level of recognition as is who wears hijab, of being Muslim, how hard that is, what a struggle that is to go outside the house, like how depressed some people get and not even want to leave. Be like, I want to wear hijab, but I don't want to leave my home. Mm. Right. And so the, the, the and the lack of that and the way that these things are privileged, I just think that so much has to change about the scholarship for them to be taken seriously by the youth. And a big part of that has to do with a like the need for women and female scholarship when the, the reason that that doesn't exist is it existed 200 years ago. And the, the privileging of certain ideological trends related to Salafism and Wahhabism and the, you know, destruction of a female class of leadership amongst Muslims directly related to that. So being anti-colonial and as a Muslim has a lot to do with privileging female scholarship. It has a lot to do with questioning uh, scholars who are related to these states and to mm-hmm. these governments and, and saying, like, how do we develop independent scholarship that's effective that will actually speak to the heart of the youth. And then how do we have, you know, people like Sheikh Mohammed Mendez, you know, mm-hmm. Sheikh Abdullah Ali, Ali Attai, all mm-hmm. these, you know, great grouping of scholars amongst us. But how do they, and I, Osama Khan and others, is I would challenge them to say, how do you move beyond a model that is a monolithic form of teaching that is top-down consistently, and how do you move into a frarian type of pedagogy of how you're dealing... And talking how just fine teach teach in one direction but then open it up and Osama does this well and I think more people need to do it more consistently and in deeper ways of how do you bring the wisdom and the knowledge out of the community and know what they're really dealing with because how do you as a spiritual you know spiritual leader mm-hmm. deal with the realities of what people are facing because man we have some Seriously, well, yeah, that's, that's the
0: problems. real struggle. I mean, and that's one of the, the major things. I mean, and it ties in with everything you're saying about women because, again, Tajdid renewal of the tradition, because, again, if this is a universal way of approaching the divine and structuring society for the greater benefit of life on earth, not just human life but all life, to have balance, to have uh, wholeness, to have healing... To support those members of society uh, in need of support, then you have to understand the context you come into. And if you come into a context which is modern, as far as like gender norms, as far as all these things, it's so different from the pre modern world that these texts were written in that. And not, not a, let alone dealing with the intellectual trends that kids are facing coming up and studying in schools, which seem outwardly, at least, to be to- go totally against what they're taught and their tradition, what their parents believe, and all these things. I mean, it's such a major undertaking that's necessary. And uh, Kavir Halminsky, to your last point, said something interesting. He took a group of um, like Western students. You know, he's a Sufi sheikh, and he took a group of. Western students of his to I think it was like Bosnia or something, and they sat with like a Bosnian sheikh, and the sheikh Kabir from America was asking his students questions and what's your opinion and this and that, and they were having this really dynamic discussion, and the Bosnian sheikh just noted like this is so strange that you ask your students questions, like you have this type of dialogue, and he and and. Sheikh Kabir said, well, what do you mean? He said in, in Bosnia, he said, you sit silently in front of a sheikh until either you become a sheikh or you die. <laughs> like, that's it. Like, and I think a lot, not all, because there's a, there's a great diversity, but a lot of the ancient world it was very hierarchical. If you look at China, Japan, you look at these traditions and, and within Sufism as well, this idea of like, you're like a corpse in the hands of your of your master. And there's something to be said of that. And it's a difficult balance of like honoring the fact that to learn to a certain extent, you have to like submit Like, you have to honor the lineage. It takes time. It can't just be like, well, I think this. And, you know, all these young kids, well, my perspective is this. It's like, just chill. But at the same time, to honor the fact that we were born and raised in a certain context and learn in a certain way and we're used to things and it's very difficult to unlearn it. And Sheikh Kabir mentioned something interesting. He said, it's my experience after whatever 40 years on the path and teaching for all these years that... Western educated people, and I don't just mean Westerners, but Western educated people, which is increasingly everyone on earth, mm-hmm. they don't, they don't, that doesn't work for them. That complete submission, don't ask questions, it just doesn't work for them. Because we've been raised to ask questions and to Google it and Wikipedia it and think for yourself and be critical, and every p- paper you had to write was criticize and think and add something new you know you can't just write a paper where you summarize no you have to add something new you have to critique that thought so we all are raised with that and the point is that what does that mean for a traditional you know even like let alone sharia but like tariqa where it's like this very kind of like lineage and you submit to your master spirituality and uh yeah, man. I mean, there's a lot more we could get into, but I think we've been talking for quite a quite a while. Shalom, we'll have another chance.
1: Shalom, man. Yeah, and I think the, the big thing to me is just how my reflection on that and to bring it home really is how do we, again, this idea of transmodernity, which would be how do we live beyond the modern world that's been created around us and not live as ahistorical beings but understand deeply the that cultural construction of what western modernity has done to us globally as people and so an example of that would be what you're talking about would be islamic education or muslim education would probably be the better way to state it as a diverse thing that has to do with not only and even in muslim majority because even in muslim majority states these things are chopped in half now you go to quran school and you go to some like little Western school right the American school or the British school or or whatever it may be, and most of them do not have like you don't learn both you don't learn a reality as a Muslim and a reality as a Western mm-hmm. being someone who's being westernized mm-hmm. so how do we bring these worldviews together in deeply impactful ways which t- t- takes into account spirituality and being ethical beings on this earth right and 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 how do we transform? you know human existence for the for for all people who who need that transformation which i would say is all of us at this point and get how do we get out of this you know these times that we live in that that are filled with war that are filled with you know division that are filled with you know environmental catastrophe because we have serious serious work to do and i don't i for one you know want my children to think fondly of me when they think of me uh you know god willing not to think, you know, what did you? What kind of world did you leave us with? Mm, mm,
0: mm. On that note, man, inshallah, uma can lead the way because it is. It's about hearts and minds. That's the true jihad of this time, man. Right? No doubt. I mean, that's the true struggle, is is hearts and minds, is education, is learning, and uh, more and more people aren't reading. I mean, obviously you're reading. We got a lot of books here, but the vast majority of people, man, they're, they're not, their sense of knowledge is online and, you know, media they consume. Their sense of community is online, the social media that they interact with. Their sense of the world is, is global and that it's, that's a beautiful thing, but it's also a super dangerous thing. And so it's like, you know, people like yourself are trying to, like, put a beautiful voice out in this in this mass, intense chorus of voices, and you know, may you be fruitful and successful. I mean.